Good morning. My name's Aubrey, and I want to uh, add my greetings to Drew. It's very good to see you and to be here with you this morning. But to read a passage like Drew just read to us about divorce is awkward. It's awkward because people in this room have been divorced. People in our church are going through divorce. Jesus talks about adultery. People in this room have committed adultery. People in our church are perhaps committing adultery now. I mean, reading a passage like this among a group of people who know each other is really awkward. And it was just as awkward for Jesus. Because Jesus' culture was a divorce culture just like ours. Our culture is closer to the culture of Israel at the time of Jesus than your grandparents' culture was when it comes to divorce. So it says they were testing him. They threw him a loaded question. They threw him a question that they knew would create this awkward moment. And then Jesus takes this opportunity to talk about the foundations of marriage. And he does that not by talking about the only passage in the Old Testament that deals with divorce, which is Deuteronomy chapter 24, but he does that by going back to the first page of the Bible. Now, if you have a Bible, turn to the first page. Genesis chapter 1. Now, we just heard all of Genesis chapter 1 read. And so I have a pop quiz for you to see if you were paying attention. What day is the only day of creation that is not described as good? Not the sixth day. What? Two. Very good, Bob. Excellent. Oh, that's okay. Wow. Oh. Not that you were paying attention here. Oh, thank you very much. Day two is the only day that it is not described as good. We're told day one that God makes the light and divides the light from the darkness, and he says it's good. Twice on day three, when God separates the waters and the dry land and then begins to fill the earth with vegetation, twice we're told it's good. On day four, when God begins to fill the sky with lights, with the sun, the moon, and the stars, we're told it's good. Then on day five, God begins to fill the waters with fish and the air with what? Birds. We're told it's good. And then on day six, God fills the earth with animals and ultimately forms man and woman in his own image and commands man and woman now to start filling things, to fill the earth with their children, their offspring, and we're told it's good. And then finally, look at verse 31. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31... In a grand summation, we're told that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But back to day two. Silence. Crickets. Except there were no crickets yet. Not a peep. Why is day two different? What's going on there? Look, look at verse six. Genesis chapter one, verse six. And God said... 
Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. No, no pronouncement of good. Now, it's important to recognize that Genesis chapter 1 is describing the world Here's a really fancy term. Just stay with me. God is describing the world for us phenomenologically. Now, what that means is the way it looks to us. So when our newspapers say sunrise, that's what's called technically a phenomenological description. It's the way the phenomenon looks to our eyes. Okay? So what do you see when you look, out the, look at the world? What do you see when you look out these windows? What you see is a canopy, a big blue canopy or a shell separating heaven from earth. And you see this canopy spread out across the whole sky and it's blue. So to the ancient man, you know it's made out of water. And you know there's water in it because it's blue and because every now and then God opens the skylights and the water falls down on us. It rains. So that's the picture. And what's this canopy doing? It is dividing something. What does the canopy divide? Heaven from earth. It separates the heavens where God dwells from the earth where humans dwell. God is marking a boundary. He's making a division between heaven and earth on day two. And it's the only time he doesn't pronounce something he did good. And and in not describing that as good, the writer of Genesis is giving us a pregnant silence. A pregnant silence. And I'm I'm using the word pregnant here deliberately because this silence gives birth to the whole trajectory of human history. The whole trajectory of the cosmos. The whole story that the Bible tells is born right there in the pregnancy of that silence. The story the Bible tells, you see, is the story of the whole creation moving towards something. Something better than existed at the beginning. In the beginning, it was good. It was very good. But in the end, it'll be flipping marvelous. It's not not that at the beginning it was morally bad or defective. But there's an indication right here, right at the beginning. Even before humans appear, there's an indication that the way creation was originally made, the way it was constructed by God, was not complete. It was unfinished. There's something better to come. There is a goodness that did not exist at the beginning, that the whole story is reaching out toward. It has, the the Bible starts with a story that has an implicit direction. There's going to be progress and development toward a better thing. You see, according to the culture that produced the Bible, heaven and earth are actually two different dimensions. Not locations, but dimensions. 
They overlap and they interlock. So the Bible uses heaven to talk about God's space, which intersects with earth, our space, at moments. But one day, heaven and earth will be fully integrated. One day, the Bible ends, you see, in the marriage of heaven and earth. So what are we in right now? A really difficult engagement. Lots of fighting. Lots of struggling. But one day, the full marriage of heaven and earth will happen for all of time. So right here on the very first page of the Bible, by the end of the eighth verse, if you're reading this in Hebrew, this is the the last sentence of the first paragraph of the Bible. Just eight verses in, there's a separation set up that's not good. There's a tension. If you read literature, tension is what drives plot. We know the story, the Bible is a story because the first line of it is, in the beginning, right? That's how you start a story. What's the tension that starts the story of the Bible? Not sin. It's the separation of heaven and earth. It's the tension that drives the entire plot of the Bible. It's the tension that drives the narrative of history forward until the very end. It's the tension that drives us to pray the Lord's Prayer. What are we told to beg God for? That his will would be done on earth as in heaven until one day in Revelation 21 at the very end of the Bible when the story comes to this great moment where the original creation, the original creation is finally made better by the uniting of heaven and earth. What happens at the end of the Bible? At the end of the Bible, the barrier is removed. Heaven comes down to earth. That's the goal of the story of the Bible. And in the Bible, that's what salvation is. Salvation in the Bible is not us leaving earth. It's finally for heaven and earth to be united. So think about Genesis 1. Can you see that what God is doing is he's setting up a series of complementary pairs? Pairs that, first of all, he separates intentionally, but eventually he will unite. Heaven and earth. But that's not the only pair. Sea and dry land. Have you read the last two pages of the Bible? It deals with the healing of the polarity of sea and dry land. Darkness and light, the end of the Bible, deals with darkness and light. Male and female, God and creation. And later on in the biblical story, God sets up a different polarity. He sets up a polarity within humanity. God sets up this other polarity within humanity, the polarity between Jew and Gentile. He puts this boundary between Jew and Gentile. What was the boundary? Circumcision. And the law of Moses, designed to divide and separate Jews and Gentiles. But here's the key point. These polarities, these complementary pairs, this is the engine room that drives the whole story the Bible tells. This is the engine room driving God's plan for the universe. And this is all over the pages of the Bible. But my favorite place to see it, if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. It's way to the right if you're new to the Bible, close to the maps. Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we get this panoramic sweep of the whole of history. 
from before history even started. In verse 4, it said God chose us before the foundations of time, before the foundations of the world. It starts there and it goes in all the way to verse 10 to God's purposes for the fullness of time. To unite all things in heaven and things on earth. You see, right there when Paul is starting his great letter to the Ephesians and he's trying to say, what is the story of the Bible all about? He says it's about the solving of the pregnant silence in Genesis chapter 1. What's the completion to God's plan? Well, it's this, that there will no longer be a boundary between heaven and earth. But but heaven and earth and everything in heaven and earth will be brought together and united in Christ. It's the Lord's prayer fully and finally and completely and forever answered. And then in the next chapter, in in Ephesians chapter 2, we see the solving of the polarity between God and humans. In in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, the boundary between God and humans, sin, is erased. And then in Ephesians 2, 11 through 21, God overcomes the boundary between Jews and Gentiles by erasing circumcision and changing the law. And then in chapter 5, jump all the way to Ephesians chapter 5 and notice in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, the polarity, the division of men and women is overcome in marriage. What's going on is that Paul is showing us that God is taking all of those complementary pairs and he's uniting them in Christ. And this is the great story that the Bible tells. Starting on page one, going all the way to the last page. The story of history from the beginning to the end is the story of God coming to us in Jesus Christ and making us his own, a union of opposites. And according to Ephesians 5, the great symbol of God's great work is marriage. Marriage. It's hard to say that without lapsing into Princess Bride, isn't it? (laughs) Marriage. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then look what he says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers, it points, it reveals, it shows us Christ in the church. Male and female, this creational pairing of humans who are different from one another by their gender. Coming together in marriage. Paul is showing us this is one of the great signposts to ultimate reality. To who God really is and what he's really doing in this world. Maleness and femaleness are not accidental generic quirks. They are fundamental to the gospel. The binaries matter. And this is why in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is asked about divorce, this is why he sets his face firmly against it. Now, there are other places in Scripture where Jesus talks about situations where legitimate divorce tragically 
occurs. But here in Mark chapter 10, he's not willing to have that conversation. He has that conversation in Matthew chapter 5, and then again in Matthew chapter 19, and then God brings us into even a more complex analysis of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We see in these other passages that God gives grace and wisdom for those situations where someone's brokenness and sin destroys this thing that so matters to God's work in this world. And I wish I had time this morning to teach on those passages. I know so many people are bruised and wounded and deeply suffering from the breakdown of a marriage. But what we're seeing in Mark 10 is why the breakdown of a marriage is so painful. Why it's so wounding. Why it's so tragic. What we're seeing is that if you are willing to settle for a view of marriage that is okay with divorce, or a view of marriage as fundamentally about companionship. And if it's fundamentally about companionship, gender doesn't matter. If you're willing to settle for a view of marriage that's okay with divorce, or it doesn't really take gender as fundamentally serious, what you are saying is that when we marry, this is simply a social arrangement. And that's what Jesus refused to say. If we think marriage is just a social arrangement, then we're not thinking about reality according to the script of Scripture. Because the Bible tells us the story of the tremendous love of God in Christ. And marriage is one of the great signposts to the incredible joy that awaits all of creation, the great feast and celebration, the overwhelming experience of God's love on that day when we hear the cry, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The joy that will be Christ when He sees His people purified and, the, and perfected. That's the meaning of history. And the entire narrative of the Bible is driven by these complementarities, these polarities, these binaries. And so the hard, high, and ultimately infinitely valuable calling and challenge for marriage is this. Faithfulness. Be faithful because that's the only way the sign actually points to God. Who will be faithful to unite all things in his son. The hard and high calling of marriage is to be faithful to God instead of our own desires. Faithful in our hearts, not just in our outward appearances. Faithful to our marriage. And as soon as we break faith with our spouse, as soon as we break faith with our marriage, we break faith with God. If you are married... Your job is to be a living, breathing, serving, loving picture of the love of God for creation, which is faithful, permanent, indissoluble. This is the great hope of history. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the deep significance of marriage.
not companionship, not an erotic charge. It is the union of complementary pairs, male and female, signifying the love and the intimate and the unbreakable union of God for his creation and his church. And God gives us bodily differences that are as different as God is from you, as light is from dark, as earth is from sea, as heaven is from earth. And this is the reason that both divorce and same-sex sexual relationships are forbidden in Scripture. It's not about some rule. It's about the ultimate fabric of reality. It's not about just a handful of controversial proof texts. It's the whole Bible, the whole shape of history from the beginning to the end. The Bible condemns same-sex sexual relationships and it condemns divorce because they lie. They lie about God's purposes for history. They lie about Christ and the church. The Christian view of divorce and prohibition of same-sex sexuality doesn't come from just a few little verses. It's, the, it's grounded in the warp and woof, the entire unified narrative of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the entire shape of history and reality as God designed it to be. It's our gender and our sexuality. In, in them, we are designed to point toward God's work. Same-sex sexuality lies about this. So does adultery. So does sex before marriage. So does a sexless marriage. Because the relationship of Christ and the church is an intimate union and communion. So does a sexual relationship that refuses to be open to children. Because the marriage of Christ and the church is a fruitful union. And so does divorce. You see, divorce is a sundering, a tearing by humans of a union made by God. What God is united, don't tear apart. You don't have the right to do that. Divorce is the breaking of a seal engraved by the hand of God. But that's not all it is. It's also a shattering of a primary way God is telling the world what he's doing. This is why children of divorce have such a hard time. Because a fundamental way God wanted to image himself to them has been torn. But interestingly, singleness supports this view. Singleness testifies beautifully to God's plan because singleness communicates that human marriage and sexual expression in this life is not ultimate. Christ is sufficient. And the marriage of Christ and his people, that's our hope. That's our goal. And in the resurrection, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage because the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Our marriages only point to what is ultimate. That's the gospel. 
It's the romance of history. It's the overwhelming love of God in Christ that rules out same-sex sexual relationships and divorce. Did you get that? It's the love of God that stands against these things. It's only by rediscovering God's original plan that we can find the answer to our deep longings for relationships of lasting, authentic love. In fact, this is exactly what happens in the very next paragraph. Right? After Jesus talks about divorce, what is the next paragraph? Right after that, Jesus, right after he teaches us about the nature of marriage and divorce, we have the remarkable scene with the little children. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People brought children to Jesus for him to touch them. The disciples reprimanded them. But Jesus was angry, indignant. The only time that word is used of Jesus. Mark never shies away from showing Jesus' human emotions. Jesus was angry when he saw it. He said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to people like that. I'm telling you the truth. Anytime Jesus says that, it means really important now. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never get into it. And he hugged them and laid his hands on them and blessed them. What is it about children that makes them such apt recipients of the kingdom. Be careful. Here in the West, we tend to think it's their purity or innocence. We're the only moment in time where people have ever thought of children as pure and innocent. (laughs) That's not how the ancient world viewed children. No, what would Jesus' hearers have thought about? What Jesus is pointing to is the way children can so unselfconsciously Just receive a gift. Their ability to be dependent on somebody else's care. Have you noticed that about kids? They have this deep ability to just let somebody else take care of them. How about you, Casey? Is that deep? No, see, not Casey, not Mike, not Mike. We know Joetta. She's she's far farther along than, than some of us in this. She's wonderfully childlike. No. It's their ability to be dependent. And that's what we all need if we want to enter God's kingdom. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as someone who has no credits, no clout, and no claims. Absolutely nothing to bring. Only empty hands can be filled. Can you see Jesus taking these children into his arms and hugging them and blessing them? Are you like that? Are you open and receptive to Jesus? If you have never come to him, I invite you this morning, come to Jesus. How? Just like a kid comes to somebody that wants to give them a gift. Come to Jesus, turn to him in repentance and faith. And notice in verse 13, I love this. People brought their babies and toddlers and children to Jesus so that he would simply do what? What did they want Jesus to do? Just touch them. Oh, but Jesus has more than that. Verse 16, he hugged them and laid his hands on them. 
and bless them. It took Mark three phrases to say what all Jesus did. with, And here we are in this moment when you see Jesus doing that. You are looking at the beating heart of the universe. It is not, the center of our universe is not merciless chaos or blind chance. It is not evolutionary reality. It is not nothingness and it is not nature red and tooth and claw. The beating heart of the universe, the center of the universe is God, a particular God. The God who is Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God who, because He is Trinity, is love. Love to the very core of His being. You see, because God is Trinity, love preexisted all things. And just look at Jesus in this moment. And you see the disposition of God toward all of us. His desire is to bless you. To enfold you in his embrace. To enter the kingdom of God is nothing other than to enter into a relationship with Jesus. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.